0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 127. Hello again, my loyal Metamorphs. Welcome to another edition of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and MetamorphCity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, and keep you informed about my writing endeavors. So let's get straight to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Part 2 of Make-Believe, by Brian Watson. In Part 1, we saw the wizard Artax beginning a special public service project, a rehabilitation program for young mages who've used their powers illegally. We also found out he has a roommate of sorts, Levinson a disembodied spirit who speaks to Artax through a magical plant called the nocturna's lily. Levinson points out to Artax that he is making unfair assumptions about the young criminals in his class. He urges Artax to see these kids as individuals, and not just another group of bodies that Artax will treat the same way every time. Artax mostly ignores Levinson and begins looking over the case files for the new crop of students. He uses his scrying powers to look into each student's life, trying to identify the ones who are likely to be the class troublemakers. One student stands out to him, John Tunstall, an angry young man with a huge amount of magical power. Artax's visions show Tunstall hunting him down, tracking him through the city streets, and standing over Artax's motionless body. Artax tries to reassure himself that these visions are not destiny, that the future can always be changed. But his assurances ring hollow when he looks down one potential timeline after another and sees the same thing happening every time. Make-Believe A Tale of Metamorph City Written by Brian Watson Read by Chris Laster Part two. The point I'm trying to make is this. We're more evolved than other humans. It's as simple as that. So why do you keep telling us that we should serve them? I regarded the student who had asked the question. He was good-looking, tall, and better spoken than most of his classmates. Better spoken than most people his age, really. But still, he was young and he had a lot to learn. "'Because, Master Gibbons, magic comes from life itself. It serves life, and so we must serve life as well. "'Magic comes from mana,' he said. "'And maybe there's mana in a lot of things, but it's humans who know how to access it.' "'Humans, elves, even some animals can manipulate magic,' I said. "'And people who have no inner pools of mana can still access magic through rituals.' No. mana powers magic, much in the same way that electricity powers a skimmer. Without some spark of sentience to guide it, it is useless, and possibly dangerous. And as to your statement of the mage being more evolved than other humans, well, I've some telepathic friends who would disagree with you. Sentient species have been using magic since time immemorial. In terms of percentages, our numbers aren't that much greater now than they were two millennia ago nor has the nature of magic itself changed much. Our approach to it has changed, and yes, we have learned to harness it in new ways, but the simple mechanics of the process are essentially the same now as they were when this city was nothing more than a castle in a strategically important valley. What you need to remember is—I was interrupted by one of the city's civil defense alarms— the tones and duration of the claxons told us that the threat was an attack by a magical person or persons. That wasn't good. The police had mages on the force, and they were good enough for most cases. I had worked with some of them before. But if whoever this was was powerful enough to warrant a city-wide alert, then they might well be out of their league. It could be a she-lord, a demigod, or even one of the gods themselves— It might even be somebody like one of these young people, strung out on spell-fire. Which could be worse than any of those other options? While Lothanasi involvement would be a foregone conclusion if the threat were a she-lord, or some disgruntled ex-deity, a creature like that will usually have some sense of self-preservation. That means that they might be convinced to stop without the use of force. But a mortal mage causing trouble would be entirely a police matter." The mages who worked for the city's police department and the Lothanasi were good enough at their jobs, though I'd never admit that to the Lightbringers outright. But if the threat is big enough, they both have a tendency to cast first and ask questions later. Though I wasn't technically a member of either organization, my name still commands some respect in their circles. If I could get to the site of the disturbance quickly enough, I might be able to keep people on both sides from getting killed. Our class will have to be cut short for today, I told the students. Please remain here until either I return or official sources report that the crisis has passed. At that time you will be taken back to your facility. I nodded to their caseworkers and the pair of guards that had come with them as I headed for the door. Before I could reach it, a shadow fell across my path. Teacher, let us come with you, a voice said. We might be able to help. I wondered if he saw me stiffen. I wondered if he noticed that I hesitated before I turned to face him. Master Tunstall, is it? He was standing there, his left foot forward, most of his weight on his right foot. A fighter's stance, even if he didn't have his hands up for it. Yes, teacher, he said. I think we might be able to help you. Some of us, anyway. He kept watching me, tensing every time I moved, though it was hard to notice. He was a bundle of barely contained nervous energy. I did my best not to provoke him. "'Master Tunstall, I am not going to investigate a cloud of funny-coloured smoke or a malfunctioning charm. Whatever is out there is dangerous and well out of your league. None of you, none of you, are prepared for whatever that is out there, doing God's know what. You're not even sure what it is,' he said." Damn right. And Revanos take me if I'm going to lead a bunch of children into some unknown magical danger. His eyes narrowed. We're not children. Maybe we're not adults, but we're sure as hell not kids. We're something in between. But I think we're old enough to make some decisions ourselves. And look where it's gotten you, I said. He towered over me. But then I'd never been that tall, even when I had been a young man. My earlier sense of caution forgotten, I looked him square in the eyes, and he actually wilted a little. I made sure that my voice could be heard by the entire class. In a few months, some of you may be ready for some very limited and very controlled field work. But not today. As of today, none of you have proven to me that you're ready to be trusted with anything. When we meet for our next class, We can discuss precisely how you can earn my trust. But until then, you are to remain here until I get back. And what if you don't? His voice was lowered so that only I could hear. I matched his tone. Master Tunstall, if I don't come back, then whatever is out there is more dangerous than any of us can imagine, and you won't have long to worry about the fact. That wasn't strictly true, of course but perhaps a healthy dose of fear and uncertainty would get him to finally sit down. Eventually, and rather reluctantly, he did. I waited until I'd closed and locked the door to let out the breath I'd been holding. The kid has a point. I put on one of the sets of black fatigues that hung in my closet. I keep hoping, each time I'm forced to put them on that the enchantment on them will have worn off, and they won't fit any more. But fit they always do, and eventually I know that I've run out of excuses. Perhaps, I said, but I'm not going to be responsible for anyone's death if I have anything to say on the matter. If Levinson had a body, he'd be leaning it in the doorway. You say that, but you can't always control who gets affected by your actions— I jerked my head up sharply to look at the plant in this room. I don't know if he felt my gaze, or just decided to amend his statement on his own. I'm not talking about me or my people here, he said. I'm just speaking in general. We don't always know where our actions will lead us. We just need to make the best decisions that we can with the information we have available to us. You tell them to stay here. But what if whatever's out there decides in a whim that you're too powerful to leave alone, and drops a curse on the place? Even you couldn't be expected to see that coming, and yet you'd blame yourself for it all the same. If you're trying to make me feel better about myself, you're not doing a very efficient job. I'm not trying to make you feel better, he said. I'm trying to make you realize that not every person in this world, this city, or hells, even in that classroom over there, is your personal responsibility. Yes, maybe you influence some of them in ways that even you can't understand, but their lives are still their own. They make the choices, and they have to live with them. It's what being human is all about. Well, I have to live with some of my choices. Choices that I had no right to make. "'choices that cost an incalculable price. "'Not only from the people who got in the way, "'but from people who had no idea "'what they would be walking into years later. "'And I do not want any more blood on my hands. "'What there is will never wash off.' "'The sad part is that you really believe that,' "'Levinson said. "'But really, I think you're afraid "'that if you do try to wash that blood off, "'you just might succeed.' and then he was gone. A moment later, so was I. The police had set up a headquarters in a small gourmet food store on Metamore's uppermost level. They were going over some blueprints when I came in. Artax? The cautious greeting came from an attractive young woman. Detective Katane, so good to see you again. She arched an eyebrow and looked over my shoulder, not the window. Yes, Artax, lovely. Oh, posh, I said. If you're going to besmirch our reunion with unpleasant news about your job, I may just stop coming around entirely. She smiled one of her humorless smiles. I'm sure. Her gaze trailed over to an area just above my left shoulder. I'm also sure you were told this area was off-limits to civilians— I followed her gaze to the man at my left-hand side. Now that you mention it, I believe this gentleman did say something to that effect, yes? And that's when you? Certainly not. I'm no bully. The smile, cold and humorless as it was, left her face entirely. Then why? Because the baboon tried to force me away. I taught him the very valuable lesson that one should be careful about grabbing strangers in this city. You might want to give him the rest of the night off, by the way. I think it would be for the best. Do you think you might set him down first? she asked. I might, if I were convinced that he wouldn't try anything stupid. Now, some of the humor of the situation did break through into her eyes, but it disappeared quickly. Yeah, your reputation would suffer horribly if you were beaten by a man dressed like that. Now, detective, don't be insensitive— this is a standard MCPD uniform. I've just provided a few embellishments. For aesthetics' sake. Artax, MCPD uniforms are dark blue, not pink. As I said, aesthetics. The frills and lace, of course, were my own personal touches. She added controlled now, but there was a part of her that would find this funny if she weren't in the middle of it. And the ears? "'The rabbit ears that had sprouted from the man's head "'were the same shade of pink as his new uniform. "'Purely decorative,' I said. "'His own ears should be just fine. "'And this sort of spell breaks at dawn. "'Usually.' "'I broke the levitation spell that had been holding the man off of the floor, "'and Katane sent the man home for the night. "'Now what are you doing here, Hortax? she asked me. "'I should think that would be obvious,' I said. "'I'm here to help.' That's very gallant of you, Artax, but, quite frankly, we can handle this ourselves. A fireball chose that time to fly just overhead of the building we were in, rattling the windows and setting off skimmer security alarms as it went. A few seconds later the glow intensified as the sphere hit something not far from us. More sirens began wailing in the night air. I turned back to the detective and arched an eyebrow. This is the building where he finally stopped, Kitane said. He's been up there ever since. One man. All of this commotion was being caused by one man. A registered mage named Michael Parker, they told me. They also told me that Parker barely existed in the system at all. A couple of traffic tickets, but nothing serious. Certainly not anything to indicate megalomania. They were still trying to suss out an explanation when I heard it a sound like someone clearing their throat. As they continued talking, I flicked my eyes over the shelves and found what I was looking for. "'You'll excuse me for a moment,' I said. "'The headache I thought I'd beaten this morning has come back. I'm just going to find something for it.' I made my way over to the pharmaceutical aisle and found a number of small seedling plants. "'This is not very discreet,' I said. "'Can't be helped,' said Levinson.' I found you here and figured if you could find a way to communicate quickly, you would. They're out. Excuse me? Your students. They got out. This had better be a new and revolutionary definition of the word out that I've yet to become familiar with. I'm afraid it's the old standard one. How did they get out? I asked, feeling strangely calm. Don't know. The doors were already open when I got there. The guards and a couple of the caseworkers were out cold, and so was one of the kids. My hopes arose for a moment. Maybe it was Tunstall. I think I heard someone call him Gibbons. So much for hope. Another one, somebody called him Tunstall, was trying to rally the rest of the kids. Rally them? How? For what? Can't be anything good. He was saying that you're not as young as you used to be. Slowing down. And it was true. Some people think that wizards grow more powerful as they age. This is not entirely accurate. While a mage can become better at what he does over time, his main advantage is that as he gets older, he's able to access greater pools of mana from within himself. Thus, a wizard who's relatively weak in their teenage years can become very competent by middle age, and quite formidable late in their life. I've been alive for, well, longer than most people with round ears, and I was no weakling as a young man. These days even two or three big spells in quick succession won't wind me. But like I said, Tunstall was right. I'm getting older, and I'm slowing down. And a lucky shot can take down a wizard who's in his prime, regardless of his power level or inner mana reserves. What else did he say? That together they could be strong enough that they wouldn't have to be afraid. I'm sorry, I didn't stick around much after that. I just came to find you, keeping just enough of my consciousness at your shop to feel a lot of the kids leaving. And so there it was. I had two dangerous enemies out there tonight. Could you find them? Uncertainty crept into his voice. A lot of the upper-level homes have these plants, he said, but not so much in the middle level, and they're damn near unheard of on the street. If the kids aren't up here, I'm not going to be any good.' Right, never mind, then. Here's what I want you to do. Artax, are you talking to the shelf? I turned to face Detective Catane and smiled. Of course not. I've been talking to myself. Yourself? My dear detective, if I want to have a conversation with an intellectual peer, then I am very limited in my options. Often I find that I myself am the only one who can offer any decent discussion on most subjects. I thought I heard another voice, she said, looking at the area behind me. That's because I often have to carry both sides of the conversation, I said, trying my best to recall Levinson's speech patterns. Uh Uh-huh. Did you get something for your headache? I had forgotten my excuse to leave the planning table in the first place. The analgesics were about a meter farther down the aisle from where I'd been standing when she spotted me. If she'd heard more than she was letting on, then I really didn't want to think about it. No, I said to her question. A thought hit me as I was walking over here, and I got caught up. She came over to stand near me, and turned to face the same direction I was facing. These are Nocturna's lilies, aren't they? They're rare. Quite right, I said, on both counts. They only grow in one place in the entire world. Catane swallowed. The rift. How are they even gathered? Oh, the rift zone is quite safe so long as you don't venture in too deep, I said. These plants abound in the jungles of the outer zone. You couldn't pay me enough to go near that place, Katain said. And now that we've harvested some of these, why do they have to keep going back there? Can't we just make a few cuttings and start growing them in other places in the world? I'm afraid not. Their lives must begin in that magically saturated land. They'll grow here just fine after harvest, but any that are sown here don't possess the more esoteric qualities that make them valuable to potions masters and pharmacists. I sell them from my shop, you know. Yeah, Morgan mentioned that you seem pretty obsessed with them, which is saying something coming from a vampire. One corner of her mouth had quirked up, but the smile was just window dressing. After a long pause, she spoke again. You were right, We're out of our league here, Artax. I made my way to the end of the aisle and looked at the bright spot on the city's skyline. Perhaps, I said, but Parker isn't out of mine. And that's the end of part two. Come back next week for the conclusion, when Artax faces down Parker and makes a surprising discovery about Tunstall. Elizabeth Gilbert said, A good enough novel, violently written now, is better than a perfect novel, meticulously written never. So, let's take a look at what I'm working on right now. Here's your weekly writing report. This week was all about the editing. I spent nine and a half hours this week working on edits for The Lost and the Least, plus another three and a half hours on audiobook recording and podcast production. As of Friday night, I've gone 145 days without breaking my chain. That means that every day during that time, I've either met my minimum word count, or I've spent a corresponding amount of time on editing or audiobook work. I've incorporated most of the comments my beta readers have sent me, and I'm down to just a few of the bigger, thornier problems. These are the ones that will take some amount of new writing or rewriting to deal with, so I've been spending a good amount of time on thinking about the best ways to tackle them. I'm still hopeful that I can get the book to final draft by the end of this month. Over on the Patreon feed, I've just released the latest piece of bonus art. This one shows the scene from Huntress where Morgan protects Kelly from the three rogue vampires. I've put up a sample of this image at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, But if you want to see the full version, you need to become a patron. And really, why wouldn't you? Joining my Patreon campaign is the very best way to support this show and help me keep telling stories. For just a dollar a month, you can get the bonus art pieces and my exclusive Behind the Episode podcast. For three dollars a month, you also get sneak peeks at new stories, art previews, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Right now, Ben and I are working on a Christmas surprise for my patrons— And if you make a pledge by November 30th, you can get that special present too. Just go to patreon.com slash author chris lester and make a pledge today. Lastly, I want to give you guys a special Christmas shopping announcement. If there's a metamorph in your life for whom you'd like to get a signed copy of one of my books, I have a bunch of them still left over from Balticon this year. I'm selling them at my Square store. I'll put a link in the show notes these signed books are only available while supplies last. So if you want one, place your order soon. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension two five five zero eight two, 82 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2008 and 2017 by Brian Watson and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.